I hear you've been chewing on Leviticus. Have you noticed that it chews back on you? If I gave you a quiz, could you figure out all the different sacrifices and what they mean and what to burn and what to eat and what to haul away? Me either. It, it's amazing the complexity of what you guys have decided to chew on at this time in the right before Easter. But it really sets up Easter too, doesn't it? You know, before we step into chapters 8 and 9, I want to go back and revisit a little bit of where we are in the story and how we got to this point. If you go back to the book of Exodus, the Hebrews were slaves and they make their escape from Egypt. They cross a fair chunk of real estate, complain about not having enough bread and water. They're introduced to the miracle of manna and water flowing from a rock. Three months to the day, they camp at the base of Mount Sinai. That's where you guys have been for the last five weeks. It's kind of like setting up camp at the base of an active volcano. Not the most secure, calm spot you would want to be. While they are at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain. God gives them the Ten Commandments. He comes back and gives them the Ten Commandments. And they break the Ten Commandments within a couple of chapters. In the middle of all of this drama and complaining and death and rebellion, God gives instructions to Moses on how to build the tabernacle. They collect all the resources and materials, and they build the tabernacle. And that's the way the book of Exodus ends. It's a cliffhanger. We've got God's house built. Now what? Well, it's the book of Leviticus. But before we go to the book of Leviticus, there's one more thing that happens in the book of Exodus that we need to look at. And that is God's motivation. Why he's doing all of this in the first place. And isn't that the thing that really draws us or makes us hesitant to step into God's presence? We wonder what he thinks about us. Is he okay with us? Is he mad at us? I mean, we know ourselves. Are we acceptable to him or not? And it's a very open question for the Hebrew children at this point in time. They don't know. But look at what it says in uh, Exodus 19.5. He says, God is speaking through Moses. It says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. You'll be above all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I want you to turn to the people around you and go, you're special. Maybe by the time we're done, you'll believe that. But here's the thing. God says, I'm going to make you a nation of priests. And the people go, wow, thank you so much. I mean... They're scared to death. I mean, God's manifest presence is an earthquake and fires and wind. And it's like, look at the next verse. A chapter later, they go, hey, we got an idea. I tell you what, Moses, you go speak to God. And then you tell us. And, and we'll do whatever God says through you. In other words, what they're saying is, you're too close, you're too personal, and we're scared. We need some space. We, we need something to cover us. From you, Because we're afraid we'll die if we get this close to you. And it's at this moment in the story 
that this concept of atonement that we've been building all these weeks is first introduced into the conversation. If you look at Exodus 29, he's, he's been talking about how to make the, the high priestly robes. He's been going through all the sacrifices. In fact, it's a rehearsal for exactly chapters 8 and 9 in Leviticus. But look what he says. He says, you shall eat of those things, all these sacrifices, with which the atonement, the kafar, was made. And they're going, huh. God says, I, I know you're scared. I know I'm big and you're little. But I've got it covered. I've got you covered. That's literally what kafar means. The very first time it's used in the biblical conversation is, is back in Genesis chapter 6. It's another building endeavor. Except this time it's Noah building the ark. And as Noah's building the ark, God says, you need to kafar this thing. You need to cover it with pitch. Seal it so that my judgment on the world doesn't touch you inside the ark. In the same way we're about to move into God's tabernacle, it's like an ark. I'm going to cover you so that your sin and the sin around you doesn't touch you. Isn't that wild? Then we bring our narrative focus down more to the to these seven chapters we've been covering as we've been chewing on Leviticus. And it's all rehearsal. Everything in these first seven chapters, all the, the different sacrifices to, to step into holy space, the, the housewarming gift, the free will offering, the, the frankincense and salt and the sweet aroma and the, the peace offering and the thanksgiving we're to have. And everything keeps pulling us toward the time of Christ and his priesthood. And you, you can't go to Leviticus without going to the New Testament. It just you see the echoes over and over again because we know more of the story. And it's at this point that there's a couple of, of, of things in understanding how to study the Bible that we're going to dig into. One of the principles is you need to know where you are in the story. When you look at a verse, it's really nice to know where we are in the story. Have we hit the climax yet? Are we on our way? Have we hit the denouement? Where, where are we? And who are we in this story? And then... When God introduces a new concept or word, it's usually a good idea to stop and go, hold on a second, let's look around here and see what is happening. What is it that God is introducing? And we're going to see these two Bible study principles played out over and over again in chapters 8 and 9. All of this is drawing us toward this moment when we move out of the theoretical into reality. Do you remember at the all along the way, you've been hearing, and the Lord spoke to Moses. And then what you have is a long monologue. That's all we've been studying for the last five weeks is monologue. That's why it gets old. It's slogging through all of this. But all of a sudden, now it's showtime. Now we're, we're going to move out of the drawing board and into the street. And so in Ex or Leviticus chapter 8, God says, okay, you need to get Aaron and his sons. You need to get the garments, the oil, the bull, the rams, the basket of unleavened bread. Gather all the congregation because now it's going to happen. And so in verse 4, Moses does exactly as the Lord commands. And so now we're going to apply what we've just been thinking about. And that's the first application point. 
You know, the, the evangelical stream, if you, were, if you were curious, we all swim in the evangelical stream. It's, it's the word-centered life. We study God's word. We chew on it. We let it chew on us. We, we memorize it. We try to discern the principles that God wants us to live by. And it's a great stream. I love this stream. Christianity is the thinking person's faith. I know of no worldview, no religion that invites doubters, that encourages you to ask questions, to explore underneath what's going on. But there's a downside. It's easy to think that all we need to do is just know enough stuff. You got a problem? I got a book. The reason you're having a problem is ignorance. You just don't know enough. And we learn more and more, and, and, and that's all good. But it's never enough. It's kind of like before I got married to Lucy. In the abstract, I am an amazing romantic. Turned out that when I married a real human being, the abstract didn't cut it. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, you've got needs and all sorts of stuff. And I, I, I'm not all that good. I'm romantically challenged. And I didn't know that until I stepped into reality. And the same thing happens with us. You know, it's uh, Jesus' little half-brother was writing to the church in Jerusalem. And he said this little famous phrase. He says, you need to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Remember that in, uh, in James chapter 1? But it's more than just the fact that we need to, to do God's word. In fact, if you just click to that next slide for me, that would help me out here. There we go. One more on. One more slide. Make that two more slides. <laughs> too much information. There we go. All right. And you've heard this verse before, right? It isn't just knowing it. It's applying it. But it's even more than applying it. Because you've got to apply it with the right heart. In Psalm 51, David has been discovered. His sin with Bathsheba has come out. And he's repented big time. It's a Levitical moment for him. And look what he says in looking at the sacrifices. It's all about your heart. It, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. This is what God is looking for. This is what he won't despise. So take a deep breath. You not only have to know the truth, you have to apply the truth with the right heart. That's why every time you look at any of these passages, it always goes back to having a thankful heart, realizing that God loves you, that all of this is so that He can have a relationship with you. And the Hebrew children are really good at um, committing to things in the abstract. It's just when they have to do it in real life that they fall apart. So, now we're at the place where everything is going to take place. It's going to begin. So, it starts in verse 6. It says, Moses brought Aaron and his sons and he washed them with water. And then he puts the tunic on him and he girds him with a sash and clothes them with a robe. And puts the ephod on him and the breastplate. The ephod is a, is a turban. It's got a, a plate on here. It says, holy unto the Lord. And everything that's going to happen in this chapter is to make what is on the sign on Aaron's head true. 
That's where we're headed. And so all of these sacrifices are now going to be applied to Aaron and his sons. Moses is going to be the priest. He's going to be the high priest and make the sacrifices. But the first order of business is we've got to get them cleaned and dressed. And when you think about the high priestly robes, I mean, they're described in great, exhausting detail in Exodus. Not once, but twice. And here we just mention them a little bit. It says that they uh, had to put on the, the ephod and the breastplate and whatever the urim and thurim is, and we'll get there in a minute. But whenever I think of the high priest and his robes, I always think of the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that, that classical moment when uh, Dr. Rene Bellock is about to do the unthinkable, look into the Ark of the Covenant? And frankly, he's going to literally melt down, isn't he? Remember the movie? What he learns here, what we all learn, I suppose, is that the clothes do not make the man. The fact that we have dressed Aaron up in these incredible garb does not make him holy. Everything that he's going to get is imparted from somewhere else. He's just a sinful man. But the way you dress does change the way you think about life. When I put on a tux, I feel a little more 007-ish, you know what I mean? It's different than when you're wearing a pair of blue jeans. And so God dresses Aaron in these robes. He wants to remind him of what it is that he's about to do. He's got the the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on these stones across this breastplate and that Urim and Thurim, these are rocks that the high priest used to discern God's will, are put in the folds of this breastplate. But all of this, look, the reason for all of this is explained back in Exodus. If we go back to Exodus 28, here's why all of this is there. All of the, the symbolism and everything else is so that Aaron will identify with the people because he will represent the people to God. And it says, You shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thurim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. And then catch this. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. That's a heavy load, isn't it? To bear the judgment of the children of Israel on his heart before the Lord continually. I don't think a human being can do that. Well, I, I, I take that back. There is one, right? One human being, our incarnate God, who steps into time and space and wraps flesh and blood around His love and becomes not just our high priest, but the sacrifice who continues forever because He never dies. His priesthood is forever and He always lives to make intercession for us. He always carries the judgment of us on His heart before the Father. That's why all these robes are there. That's why we're doing all of these different things. Because Jesus has got us covered. Wow. Take a big deep breath. It's going to be okay. Our big brother, Jesus, has got us covered. He's got us covered from the awesomeness of God. He's got us covered in ways we would, could never believe. But we're not done. Just because we've washed and dressed Aaron doesn't mean he's ready. He's, he's clean. He's been purified, but he's not holy. And so now in, 
in chapter 8, verses 10 through 13, Moses is going to take the anointing oil and he's going to spread it around all the different via, all the different instruments. He's going to consecrate the, the, the altar seven times and, and the laver and the base and he's going to pour it on, on Aaron. And, and you begin to realize that just as Moses is anointing and consecrating all the other instruments, he's also anointing the instrument named Aaron. He will he'll be an instrument in God's hand of bringing redemption, covering acceptance for all of us. Then after he's done that, then we, we have the offerings, the sin offering, the shatat we talked about where uh, you know, Chad mentioned that it's the decontamination from their unintended sin. And it's unintended sin, but it's because we have a sin nature. We just are naturally sinful. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to plan it. We just are. And so they're dealing with that sin and also the, the sin offering. You know, they, they place their hands on the bull. It's such a symbol of transferring the sin from your view to an innocent victim. And that innocent victim is killed to take the sin out of the way. And then there's the burnt offering. The burnt offering was a lamb. We talked about it being a korban. It's, it's like the housewarming gift when you come to visit. And then something new happens in chapter 8. In verses 22 and following, it says there was a second ram, a ram of consecration. In other words, this is a unique opportunity to set Aaron apart as the high priest. So there's a special offering for him. And they do something different with the blood this time. We've been spraying blood everywhere. It's on the altar, around the altar, at the base of the altar, even in front of the Holy of Holies, the veil. But now we're going to do something really unusual with the blood. We're going to put it on his right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right toe. Now, doesn't that make a lot of sense? I mean, is it like when, you know, in the Middle East, when somebody votes and they have a, a purple finger, they're all excited about they voted? Is, is this that we're going to make sure we've got, him, we've got the right guy? It doesn't say in the text, but you can infer that he's being consecrated because he's going to listen to the confessions of the people, right? He needs, he needs an ear of discernment. He's, he's going to be the one that's butchering these animals and killing them and offering them as a sacrifice in place of the people. And on his foot, well, he stands in holy ground. He needs to be reminded of this. It's clearly a sacrifice of decontamination. Because you're going to run into this again in chapter 14 when it talks about the rituals when a leper is clean. Guess where we're going to put the blood? Same place. Now, after all of this, we're still not done. Now they're told to camp out. They need to camp out for seven days in the outer courtyard. This is a, another period of purification. Because we're moving toward that great day, the, the, the final moment here of the sacrifices. In all of this, you might remember something else that's been going on because this sounds like something that's already happened. It was the Passover. Remember the Passover? That's when the Lord spoke to Moses and said, you need to take a lamb, every household, you need to kill it, you need to spread the blood around the, the mantles, don't leave the house. If you go outside, you'll, you'll die. And, and look at what it says here in, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. It says, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through 
to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. This is a, an ancient custom called the Threshold Covenant. It was well known. It wasn't, it wasn't something new. God is taking something old and making a new point with it. Back in the, in the far in the Middle East at this time, when a conquering king came and you were in favor of it, you butchered an animal, prepared a feast, and you advertised your endorsement of this new king by pouring the blood in the threshold and usually putting it on the, on the mantle, on the doorpost as well. It was a welcome sign because you wanted the king to cross over your threshold and have a meal with you. And that's what's going on in the Passover. But now, take that very idea and turn it around, because now we're going to take that threshold covenant, and it isn't God coming in to dwell with us. It's us going into God's house. See what's happening here? And just as the, the blood was a welcoming sign and an invitation, it's going to be the same way going the other way, but there's going to be more blood and more sacrifices because when we go to dine with God, God has got to cover us too. He will dress us so that we can step into His presence and not die. And that takes us to chapter 9. It came to pass on the eighth day. All the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses says, this is the thing the Lord commanded you to do. And it says, the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And then... Moses says to Aaron, go to the altar, make your sin offerings, your burn offering, make atonement for yourself and for the people. And you're thinking, wow, are we ever going to be done? I mean, we've already made all of these offerings, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the offering of consecration. We've had the seven days camped out. In the outer courtyard, a period of purification and completion. And we still need to offer more sacrifices. Yeah. Aaron's not holy. God is holy. So he offers the, the bull. He puts his hands on, transfers the sin. And then it says, Aaron went to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Do you remember studying the calf in the book of Leviticus? Trick question. There is no calf anywhere in those seven chapters. You know, where did this calf come from? This, why are we offering a calf right before Aaron is his big moment? I mean, where he's going to make intercession for the... Oh, there is a calf in the story, isn't there? Remember the golden calf? Remember that moment? Moses is communing with God on the mountain for 40 days. And what do the people do? They decide to break the first two commandments. Have no gods before me. Make no graven images. And who's the ringleader in all of this? Oh, it was Aaron, right? Remember the passage in uh, Exodus chapter 32? He receives the gold from their hands. He fashions it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And they say, yeah, this is your God. Let's build an altar. Let's proclaim a feast. And so they make burnt offerings and peace offerings. And they sit down and they eat and drink and they rose up to play. Yay, us. 
nearly gets them all killed, doesn't it? Can you imagine what's going on with Aaron? Everything that could conceivably be done to make him acceptable before God. He's as close to God as he's ever been. And what happens when you get up close and personal with God? He shows you the depth of your sin. And he also shows you the height of his atoning love. Have you noticed in yourself an approach avoidance with God? If you know God, you, you should. When you get close to God, His holiness reveals our brokenness. But as you get close to God, His love covers you. And you realize you're really the Beloved. And we walk around with these two things in our lives. We're broken and we're beloved. And the one explains the other. We don't really know God's love until we understand how broken we are. And we don't know how broken we are until we understand God's love. That's where Aaron is. He's at that moment when God says, I've got it covered. You know, the, the depth of his sin is saying that, remember we were, Looking earlier at the, the word for sin, it's the word shatat. It's to, to miss the way or to miss the mark, to fall short. It, you know, it can be an archery term. It's the same word is used in the New Testament. It's the word harmartea. We get our English word harm from that same idea. But it isn't just that we, we took a wrong turn, missed the mark, fell short. Those all sound recoverable. It's worse than that. Paul reminds us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. It isn't just that we miss the mark. We fatally hit something else. Isn't that wild? It made Him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf. That's, that's the covering. That's where God intercedes. He puts the Son between us and the wages of death. And Christ dies for us. And we are wrapped in His righteousness. Well, this is the point in the story when you quit looking at Aaron and you look at yourself. Everybody's got a golden calf lurking somewhere in the dark corners of their life, don't they? I do. What's your most embarrassing thing? Why would it that you would never want to be publicly broadcast to everybody else? Could be a lot of things, couldn't it? For me, it was pornography. I, I took pornography right into my marriage. And I thought, well, you know, I, I can manage sin. It's something we human, doing, human beings love to do. We manage sin. There are different ways to manage it. In America, we do it through comparison. I just looked around at my contemporaries and think, I don't have a problem. I'm, I'm no worse than anybody around me. Until you get close to God and God shows you your sin. Remember the old joke about the grizzly bear coming at the two campers and the one guy sits down to put his tennis shoes on and the other guy turns to him and says, you can't outrun a grizzly. And he says, I just have to outrun you. Yeah. That's the way we look at sin, isn't it? But it doesn't work. Sin is so much bigger than that. It's all fatal. If, if God doesn't cover us, the exposure is deadly. But that leads us to a new point. There, a couple of weeks ago, 
Chad took us to the idea of the Torah, this idea of the way, this idea that there is a, a proper, precise way to do things. And in Leviticus chapter 9, the key verse is probably verse 16. It says that Moses did everything according to the prescribed manner. That's, that's that idea of the way of the arrow. There is a, a, a way that judges everything else as true or false. Uh, and there are a lot of different words for that. Probably the most common one in the, in the Bible is the way. David says, teach me your ways, O Lord. And it's the idea that the, the order of the arrow, you, you always hit the mark because you're always following what God says. And we don't because we're sinful and we miss the mark. We fatally hit other things. But there's something else that intervenes here. Because when you think about the way, you might remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Thomas is asking questions about the way, and he goes, we don't know the way. And Jesus goes, sure you do. It's me. I'm the way. But it's an interesting word here in the Greek text. It's the word hodos. It's the word we get our word exodus from. Jesus says, I'm your escape plan. I'm the one that rescues you out of Egypt. I, I'm, I'm the journey. So let's go back. It isn't just knowing the truth. It isn't just applying the truth. It isn't just having the right heart attitude. It's being in the right company. Jesus says, come with me. Live your life with me. And at the end of the day, you will be where you need to be and you will have become who you need to be. Because in my company, I will cover you and I will saturate you with my righteousness until you are the righteousness of God. This is where Leviticus is going. This is where the whole Bible is always going. And it's when we're finally covered, when we're finally set free, when we see the the depth of our sin and the freedom that God has given us and we are covered. Now we can step into blessing. First time in Leviticus, this shows up. Aaron lifts his hands and blesses the people. Moses and Aaron go into the tabernacle and then they come out and they bless the people. And the the blessing is saying, you're covered. You're okay. Blessings tell you who you are. They tell you what your identity is. And they provide you with the weapons and the resources to battle through all of the things that are trying to prevent you from your identity and your destiny. That's where they're going. It's the very first thing God does with human beings. He creates them and He blesses them. And He tells them their job assignment, be fruitful and multiply. Care to guess what the very last thing Jesus does as He's ascending to heaven? He blesses the people. He says, be be fruitful, multiply. Fulfill the great commandment. Go into all the nations and tell them the good news. But it's because they are blessed, because they have been covered now, finally, God is going to manifest His presence before them and they don't die. Instead, they celebrate. The very end here, it says, Then the glory of God appears to all the people. A fire comes out before them and it consumes the burnt offering and the fat and the altar. And the people yell and they go, Yay, God, we're we're okay. We're okay. You accept our sacrifice. It, it means the atonement is working. That we can have fellowship with you. 
It's so easy to study and accumulate knowledge and to think that you're, you're better than somebody else or to think that just because you know something, you actually can do it. And then there are times when we do things. I, I remember once, I, I've been an itinerant missionary all my life. Well, most of my life. I remember one time Lucy said to me, she said, Gary, what would it look like if you tried to fulfill the Great Commission at the expense of the Great Commandment? Remember the two? The Great Commission going to all the world, teaching them to observe all things. That's the Great Commission. The Great Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. She goes, what would it look like if you tried to fulfill the Great Commission at the expense of the Great Commandment? And I thought, God, why did you give me a wife that asked questions like this? Uncomfortable questions. This may be worse than the golden calf. And I said, well, hon, give me a mirror and I'll describe him in detail what it looks like to try to fulfill the great commission at the expense of the great commandment. And I thought, oh, man, that's my default mode, my, my sinful default mode. God, I'd love to spend time with you, but I'm busy preparing a sermon or, or I, I would love to spend time with you, but I've got to reach this country or I'd Really? And then he reminds me. He misses me. He would rather die than live in eternity without the possibility of you being there. And then in that moment, I miss him too. That's what's really going on. God invites us into his home. He comes and dwells inside of us. There's a threshold covenant. There's a huge expensive price to get there. But oh my. When you do, He becomes the journey. He becomes your life. The only way any of us ever navigate this life in a way that's acceptable and pleasing to this holy, glorious God is in the company of our Savior. Yeah, Leviticus chews on you pretty good, huh? Oh, Daddy, thank you that you do not leave us in our sin. That you make a way for us. A way of a salvation and covering that ultimately soaks through our outer skin and into our hearts and our spirits. That we get to live with you. And not just in the future, but now. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for those that are hesitant to come and get close to God because of golden calves. I pray in our desperation we'd give up our pride and we would step into the humility of allowing You to undress our souls and heal us and love on us. But Father, I pray too, as we draw near to You, we would see Your glory and Your healing in our lives and that we would want to step into the way of the earth to walk in Your way in hand in hand with our Savior, 
to live out the blessings and identity that you have called us to. Oh, God, do that. In the glorious name of our risen Savior, amen and amen.